Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, we're joined by Nathaniel Rakich, an elections analyst for the website 538.com, which was founded by another Nathaniel, Nate Silver, and is now owned by ABC News. Nathaniel is a graduate of Harvard, who was editorial editor of the Harvard Crimson. He's written about politics and elections in various forms since 2013 and has been with 538 since 2018. My connection to him is through his baseball writing. This episode came about as a suggestion from a relative of mine that I do something on polling and the analysis of elections. And that's a good chunk of what we'll talk about. Uh, Nathaniel, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. So first of all, I just went through your bio. Explain it a little bit more as it relates to who you are and what you do. I took a very roundabout path to my current job. In college, I was involved with journalism and writing. I was involved with two campus publications, The Crimson and Let's Go Travel Guides. And at the same time, I was a government major, and I just didn't really connect the two at all in my head. I thought that writing and publications was just a fun thing to do. And then when I graduated, I would be serious and get a job in government or politics, and that would be that. After graduating, I held a variety of jobs and internships in government and politics that were unsatisfying for various reasons. I worked in government itself for a while, and that was just kind of slow, nine-to-five job, not as stimulating as I had hoped. I had a few jobs in politics as well that were more interesting, but had I just wasn't as into the practice of politics as I was the analysis of it and things like that. And so uh, during one of these jobs, I ended up starting a blog, Base Ballot, which was really my outlet for writing about whatever I wanted, but it turned out to be a lot of politics and baseball, as you can tell by the, the name. And I emulated a lot of what Nate Silver was doing at 538 with that, really got into data journalism and really the idea of empirically based journalism and writing and analysis, not necessarily the data part or statistical analysis like 538 is famous for. I've actually never taken a statistics class. I'm not you know, a coder or anything like that. I, I don't do modeling like Nate, like Nate does. But that's really what kind of made me realize, hey, I can write about politics for a living instead of kind of living it or running for office or or doing something that was not really appealing to me, which was a bit of an epiphany. And so I, I continued to work. And my last job actually was very valuable. It was it was in politics, but it involved a lot of research, particularly demographic and elections research. And that gave me a lot of the tools that I now use today in researching my articles. But once I kind of was confident enough, I quit that job and became a full-time freelance writer. Did that for a few years, eventually started freelancing for 538, which was kind of always my dream and goal. And then eventually they hired me full-time in 2018. So so there's one other aspect here that I think is kind of cool. You are the first person that I have talked to and probably the only person that I will wind up talking to that has interned at one point for Joe Biden. Can you just tell us about what that was like and how that shaped your, I guess, your viewpoint? In college, I I interned for Biden. um, And while I was kind of still thinking I was going to go into government and politics and and kind of dabbling around in that world, it was certainly interesting. It was was humbling as a history nerd to go to work in the White House every day. We got exposure to lots of very smart people. 
doing important work. And we got, as the intern class, we got like spoken to, or we had like weekly, or maybe it was biweekly, I don't know, like sessions where kind of some of the the boldface names of the Obama-Biden administration would speak to us about their stories. And that was, that was always a highlight. And speaking of Biden specifically, the, the funny thing is that when he did his talk to the interns, we were warned that Joe Biden had never spent less than three hours with a class of interns in his entire career, being, of course, a famously long-winded guy. And then we ended up getting him for two hours. So, so we broke that record, but it was still twice as long as, as any of our normal talks, which were normally tended to be an hour. And he, he was very much like uh, you see on the, on the campaign trail, just letting loose with stories from his past and taking questions and, and giving us some of those Joe Biden folksy aphorisms. It was, it was pretty funny. And it's funny to think that he is now the president. So what's fun about covering polling? Well, it's not just polling, right? I actually think that beyond the, the stuff beyond polling is, is the more interesting stuff. Sure. I just think politics is absolutely fascinating. There's certainly the, the machinations of legislating and the government process itself in Washington, D.C. and also in state capitals, but also just elections and, and the trends that happen therein, how different demographics turn into different election results. Learning a lot about geography and different parts of the country is really fun. The, the diversity, you know, geographic diversity, political diversity, demographic diversity of this country is really amazing. And one of my favorite things is learning about local elections, geeking out about state legislator, state legislatures or something like that, and really getting to know what issues drive people on the local level level, what's going on in Carson City or some other state capital that is far flung from where I live in Boston. Yeah, that's what's fun about it, I guess. All right. So let's let's dive in to 2020. And let me explain just first how I followed the election, which I think you'll appreciate because it, it heavily involves 538. So I had 538 in one tab, Twitter in another. I had the TV off because I couldn't deal with the emotion of watching it on television. And I would watch the bit by bit your like essentially mini blog posts and whether that was you or Nate or the other people that work for 538 and there's a very wide swath of people with a very wide swath of perspectives. And I'm sitting there and I'm uncomfortable because of certain things that I'm hearing, but I'm comforted by something that I had read on your site in the days leading up to the election that detailed just how wrong the polls would have to be for this to go Trump's way. And I had read another article that said this could be a landslide or it could be a pain in the ass. And there was a number in my head, okay, this is how far Biden can be behind, kind of a, I guess, back of the napkin, but all in my head as I'm doing it. And I'm like, he's within that number. And as long as with he's, he's within that number, the math's eventually gonna swing his way. And I'm curious how that compares to you who lived the coverage of it and what it was like to try and right through it, the experience, because you really have to tune out the emotional aspect of it, as I tried to do. And I'm curious how a reporter covering the election and polling and data and all that stuff, how it, it went for you. Yeah, well, it was certainly an exhausting experience, right? I mean, we started live blogging on Tuesday, and then the election wasn't called until what, Saturday, which was just an unprecedented amount of time to be basically live blogging straight through. There were some evenings between 3 a.m. and 7 a.m. that we that we went dark, but 
for the most part, it was pretty continuous. It was a weird experience because we were simultaneously prepared for it to take that long and for the weird shifts that we saw. And yet we hadn't actually lived through them before. So it was, it was just very weird and impatient and, and uncertain. So we had written a lot about this concept of blue and red shifts and how the first votes that we're going to report in certain states were not going to be representative. And we saw this happening, but like, it's just still, still so strange to see happen in reality. And, 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 and just like waiting when Pennsylvania, eventually Biden is going to take the lead, but we're still 48 hours away from that happening. That was, it was, it, we were in a weird place because we couldn't, project the winner when Trump was still winning. We don't project winners at 538, but ABC News, our our parent company does. And so it was hard to kind of characterize the race in that way. And we had to tell people to be patient. There are millions of votes still out there to be counted. And and just like that, we were by like Friday or Thursday, we were like, can this happen already? (laughs) We were pretty tired at that point. I, I did basically pull an all nighter on Tuesday night and then got a normal amount of sleep on Wednesday night. Other people were pulling out the slack, but then Thursday night again, I think that was the night that we were waiting for Georgia, for Biden to pull ahead in Georgia. And so we ended up staying up until 3 a.m. then to cover that. But then the race still wasn't called. And then at some point on Friday, Biden went ahead in Pennsylvania, but then the race still wasn't called. So it, it kind of felt like death by a thousand cuts, both for, for Trump and for journalists who just needed some sleep. <laughs> yeah, certainly. All right, so let's get into the interpretation of polls because that, that's become a big story in the last two presidential elections in particular. And I've, <laughs> I've said that 538 kind of cursed itself when it went 50 for 50 calling states a few elections ago. Uh, and then that, is, to- that was never the best way to think about know what 538 does. (laughs) Right. Well, so 2016, we know what happened. The percentages said something. They didn't say it was an impossibility. They said it was an unlikely, and an unlikely happened. 2020, again, it's an unlikely, and this time it doesn't happen. Now, there were things that I guess the polls were off on, I don't like to say, I don't, and I'm guessing you don't like to say right and wrong. There were things that the polls were off on. There were fewer of those in 2020. Again, prefacing off my long ramble, what is the state of election polling circa 2021? What is, what are pollsters and analysts doing well and uh, how can it be improved? I think pollsters continue to get a bad rap. What we've been trying to say at 538, certainly since 2016, but really even before that, is that polls are uncertain. They are they are, they are scientific. They're statistical. They're they've got a good track record going back years and decades. So two bad election cycles shouldn't cause you to throw them out. They remain the best tool that we have to predict elections. Just because they're not perfect doesn't mean that we should throw them out and then use you know people's gut instincts. That would be even worse, right? But the thing that's important to remember is that polls have margins of error, and you're never going to predict like exactly get the the correct percentage whether it's within four percentage points or five percentage points or whatever the margin of error is that that error does exist and what we at 538 do by putting percentage point or percentage chances on events is to try to reflect how likely it is that the polls will be off or wrong to kind of use a blunt term so the state of polling it's it's in flux certainly there are definitely questions about whether they are 
able to capture Trump support in particular uh, and Republican support in general accurately within, I think it's, it's important to note that even a miss of a few percentage points like we saw in 2020 and in 2016 is, is normal. So it's not necessarily an existential question. It's not like they missed the election result by 10 points. But there are, are probably problems that need to be solved. And I think that most pollsters, pollsters have an incentive to be accurate. And so they will um, dedicate themselves to to solving them as best they can. They can. That doesn't mean that things are going to be perfect going forward. They might continue to elude them. I think a lot of the people thought they had figured out the problem after 2016, and it doesn't seem like they did. That might happen again in 2024, or maybe they find the problem and they overcorrect for it, and then it, the polls end up favoring Democrats. Who knows? There's, there's a, a wide range of possibilities there. So one of the tools that I'm most used when I would follow 538. And I was going there maybe twice a day throughout the last few weeks of the election was the winding snake. Mm. And I appreciated the winding snake because it gave me a, a sense of, again, just how wrong things would have to be for, for it to swing one way, to swing the Trump way. And when you looked at the winding snake, like the Florida was not necessarily in the locks column for someone for Biden. And North Carolina was maybe ahead of Florida, but not, again, not in the comfortable locks position for Florida. And I just felt like that, I was like, okay, that I can understand getting those, those wrong. Do you have a sense on those states, like the states that were really tight, what, what the issue could be? Well, I think the states that were really tight, the issue was just a normal margin of error, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think Florida was particularly, um, it was a particular miss. And I think that a lot of that has to do with Hispanic voters, um, Cuban Americans in particular, but uh, also Puerto Ricans and, and other Hispanic voters in Florida um, were really more pro-Trump than anybody was really expecting. So that's definitely going to be something that the pollsters should look into. And of course, note that that's different from what happened in 2016, right? In 2016, the issue was uh, white working class support, which also may have been a problem in 2020. But like, it kind of goes to show you that a lot of these errors and polls can happen for random, unforeseeable reasons. It's it's not always going to be easy to fix, you know, or easy to identify the problems. The best we can do is to just remember that polls can be off sometimes. Um, But as you kind of noted at the beginning, right, when the polls are saying that Joe Biden is going to win by nine points nationally, that gives him quite a bit of padding, which he ended up needing, right? He ended up winning by five points nationally. Like there's a big difference between the polls being off by four points and the polls being off by 10 points, which is what it would have happened to, to, for Trump to win the um, popular vote. Of course, he could have won the electoral college with less. I want to balance getting deep in the weeds here with talking about the journalistic process. And I just thought of something that I've been asking other uh, people that I want to ask you just to get your perspective. How do you come up with your story ideas? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a collaborative process between me and my editor. Sometimes I'm reading the news or on Twitter or um, playing around with election results or something like that. And something will pop up in my head, a question I want answered or just something in the news that we have data e take on. And so I'll have an idea and I'll pitch it to my editor. But then other times there might be something that is on the docket for 538. So for example, this week we released our Biden approval rating tracker, which is we, we do that for every president now. And, and so I got 
got assigned to, to write the kind of explainer piece to go along with that, to explain its methodology and, and what Biden's approval rating was. So, so it's definitely a mixture of, of things that contributing to the, the kind of flagship stuff that the site does during the election that was writing off the model and things like that and other ideas that my editor has, but then also kind of more original off the wall ideas or, or kind of things that, that occur to me personally that I am kind of like a pet interest of mine that I want to dig into. Well, I was going to say, can you take, can you give us an example of something where it was your idea and you took it from start to finish? Is there like a big giant database that you're going to for information? Are you, do you interview anyone? Are you talking to anyone to consulting with people for help? How do you, how does it all come together? Yeah, that's an interesting question. There's not really a, a giant database. I mean, we do have some we have databases of election results and, and past polls and things like that. And those are useful, but there's not like a database of ideas or like one source that I go to for ideas. There was one article, actually, it ended up being two articles that that we wrote about Biden's cabinet. And I kind of realized early on that he was appointing a lot of women to his cabinet. And so I realized that he might appoint a, a gender equal cabinet, uh, all men and all women, or half men and half women, which has never happened before in American history. And so once I identified that, I was like, this is this would be a really interesting article to write once he kind of hits this milestone, or it actually ended up coming out the day that he appointed the, a record number of women to his cabinet, which I believe was eight. But I talked to our visual journalist who had some great ideas about how to kind of visualize this over time and the growth of, the, of women in the cabinet over time. I also talked to and ended up co-writing with one of our political scientist contributors who has done a lot of work on kind of gender and politics. That's Meredith Conroy. And then I also set to work collecting the data of all the past cabinet nominees for past presidents and, and what their gender was. We ended up going to back to Jimmy Carter because before that there were almost no women in the cabinet. And so that kind of, I brought everyone together. I gave our visual journalist, Anna, the, the data. She created a beautiful graph. Uh, Meredith and I co-wrote the article and, and it ended up being two articles, as I said. So that I think was is, a, is an example of kind of something I saw in the news happening, was able to anticipate kind of history being made in that way. And, and we, we were able to publish it basically immediately when history became made and, and got a pretty good response out of it. 538 is, I think, one characteristic is a lot of collaborative articles. I've noticed a yeah. lot of articles with two, three, four bylines on it. Do you have any tips for the younger journalists that are listening uh, to this podcast with regards to collaboration on, on articles? I mean, I, I enjoy collaborating. And I guess like that's a, a big part of it is just hopefully you enjoy people and, and working with other people and kind of bouncing ideas off of other people and things like that. But I guess I would say don't bring, you know, your ego into it. Obviously, it's okay to have an idea for what the story is going to look like, but you should also realize that other people may have their own ideas and maybe some of those ideas are better than yours. And so not getting too attached, I think, to, to some of your own ideas and just like being flexible and realizing that it's just a story. And if you're at least you're in a job like me, you're going to write multiple stories in a week and in a few 
weeks or months, people will forget about the story, but the, you know, kind of relationships that you make, either stronger ones for working together well with someone or weaker ones for, for clashing with someone, that's what's going to be the lasting legacy of the article or any collaboration. So bearing that in mind. And then I guess I would also just say like, clear communication and and delineation of workload from the beginning. So we had our visual journalist who was obviously working on the the graphic for it. And anytime there was an update or we caught an error in the data, I made sure to to pass that along to her. And then co-writing with Meredith, we kind of clearly marked out the areas of expertise that we had. So I was writing off of the data that I had collected, whereas Meredith was bringing in some of the literature from political science. And that kind of led to a natural division of labor where I kind of wrote the beginning of the piece. And then we started getting into what does this mean at the end, toward the end of the piece? And, and that's the part that Meredith wrote. Yeah, I was going to say that at 538, I would think that there are people with very clear expertises that are very different and that it's good to bring them to bring them all together. We'll be back with more from Nathaniel Rakich in just a moment. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. There's something that 538 has featured a number of times within articles and analysis and discussions that I find really interesting, but I don't necessarily understand it. The (laughs) idea that one state's voting behavior uh, matches up with the voting behavior of another state. Is is that something that, that you feel comfortable explaining? Sure. I mean, do you just mean like how states tend to move together? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think one of the big things in modern politics is, you know, certainly polarization, but how partisanship and the national mood really predictates a lot of what happens in elections. And it happens that not in all cases, but more so recently, if you have a a midterm election like 2018, you're going to have a national mood that is consistent across all the states. And because politics is increasingly driven by the top of the ticket these days, the presidency, what's happening in Washington, if you have an unpopular president like President Trump was in 2018, that's going to affect every state. And so Vermont might be very different politically from Alabama, but they're both going to be a little bit bluer or maybe much bluer than they normally are in an environment like that with an unpopular Republican president. And so we had 538 have the statistic partisan lean, Cook Political Report calls it PVI. It's very basically, it's just like the partisanship of a state. So like Vermont might be 30 points Democratic leaning, Alabama might be 20 points Republican leaning. But if the, the national mood as a whole is five points Democratic leaning, then you can literally just do the math and say that in Vermont, instead of being 30 points Democratic leaning, it's going to be 35 points in this election, like with kind of like a rising tide lifts all boats or a sinking tide, depending on which party's perspective you're talking about. Again, I should say this doesn't happen all the time. There can be different effects in different states. For example, maybe maybe some states get hit harder by COVID and therefore they are more anti-Trump because of that. That could have resulted in maybe some of the odder patterns that we saw in the 2020 election. I mean, overall, the map looked 
similar, you know, better for de- Democrats than it did in 2016, but fundamentally the red state, blue state divide was still there. But there, there can be these kind of local factors that do feed into it. I guess maybe a better example is like in 2014 in Kansas, you had a very unpopular Republican governor and that made what would have been what you would have expected to be a good Republican year nationally. And it was, it was better for Democrats in Kansas. So, so yeah, so there can be exceptions, but, but for the most part, a lot of people are looking at the president and and what's happening in Washington as kind of their guide about which party they they're angry at or are supporting. And so that kind of trickles down from there. A few more questions for Nathaniel. Is there a story looking ahead, whether it be in the immediate future or 2022, something that you're really looking forward to sinking your teeth into? Looking forward to, I I think one big political story in 2021 is going to be redistricting. We're going to be drawing the new congressional lines for and state legislative lines for every state. And that could have a big effect on who controls state legislatures and Congress for the next decade. After the 2010 elections, Republicans did really well. That gave them the ability to redistrict and gerrymander quite a bit. And they were able to hold the House until 2018, largely based on the strength of those those gerrymanders. So this is definitely a big fight. And I think there's a lot that the data can teach us, obviously, about you know how redistricting might benefit Republicans again, or maybe Democrats in some cases this year. And so basically, that's going to be you in terms of trying to come up with the ideas, looking at the maps and being like, oh, this jumps out, just like a, a reporter who covers maybe a local political issue goes to a town meeting, hears something and says, oh, that piques my interest. It's the same kind of thing, right? Same kind of principle. Yeah, I mean, the, the, redistricting is such a broad topic. We could, and I'm sure we will, write specific articles about, oh, the Texas map is going to give Republicans two extra seats or something like that. But we also might write kind of more magazine style featurey stories about some of the the fights going on in, in some of these states or some of the tensions between, for example, like minority activists who want to make sure that there are districts created with that are a majority black or majority Hispanic and give those communities representation in Congress. But that also can dilute or it hurts democratic power because by packing voters, particularly voters of color into fewer districts is something that Republicans have used in order to gerrymander. So just like spilling out some of these tensions in in a more narrative style is also something we might do. We go to the pay it forward portion of the uh, interview, Hmm. paying it forward in terms of Helping people understand, I imagine there are a lot of people out there that are frustrated with polling that looked at it and they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, it it was wrong. It was off. It's not worth my time. What would you say to them to allow them to better understand it? Maybe put it in in a more basic terms than the mathematic and and scientific aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, I guess, again, I would just say that polling is not perfect. We've never pretended that it was, but it is better and has a better track record than other methods of forecasting elections. So we do believe it still has value. You can go into election and pretend absolutely nothing and say this is 50-50, but if the polls are saying Republicans are going to win by 20 points, that's not really truly nothing. That poll could be wrong, but it's even if it's off, it would have to be off by quite a bit for Democrats to win that race. And a Republican 15-point win isn't that different from a Republican 20-point win. Obviously, when a race is close, it's going to matter more. But yeah, I would just say that you shouldn't disregard it completely. You should 
the lesson from 2016 and 2020 is to just be aware that there can be some variation. Don't take the, the number literally. Think of it as a range, maybe a range of outcomes. It certainly helped me as I watched the election unfold in 2020. What advice would you give to someone who's maybe in college that's just kind of starting out with this stuff who wants to cover a topic with data? If you're in college, you're in a better position than I was in because I didn't realize that I wanted to do journalism and specifically data journalism for a living until maybe five years out of college. And therefore, I didn't have access to the ability to take a stats class or take a computer science class or learn some some data sets. So certainly taking taking classes like that, I, I would have definitely benefited from a, taking a class on polling in college. That would have been great. Learning R, R is a, a very useful tool for data analysis as well. I'm just taking advantage of that. But also I would say that as I show, those skills aren't deal breakers. So if you are maybe out of college and have missed out on that, don't despair. I guess the other piece of advice following that that I would say is to write a lot, start your own blog or or do something you know, like that. Join Twitter, which was a big deal for me, honestly. I mean, that's how you know Mark and I became acquainted. Share, write things, build up a portfolio, share them with people. People be engaged with people politely and humbly. And if you have interesting things to say, people will respond uh, favorably. So people are interested in, in the exchange of ideas and in helping young journalists as well. So, so getting that practice with the writing aspect, I think is also very important because I've definitely no improved as a writer. And there's that. nothing wrong with having another topic of interest. Like baseball was something that you were able to kind of balance with, with political to make yourself even, I think, stand out a little bit more. Yeah, well, uh, that's that's nice of you to say that it made me stand out more. I was also worried that it was like unfocused, but but yeah, well, no, it, absolutely. You well, can write about you whatever you want on your blog. That's the benefit. <laughs> yeah, it makes you distinct. I have, I have a friend who's into political science and he just started a newsletter as, as people are yeah. doing these days. And he the way that he's kind of come to it is he has a big collection of political memorabilia all in this one big giant box and he pulls something out of the box and he says, okay, I'm going to relate this to the oh, current cool. day. I and, like that. and he, he, that's how he has formulated the start of a, a little, I don't know that I would call it journalistic enterprise, but a writing <laughs> enterprise and a pretty cool one. I'm yeah. enjoying it. All right. Last one. Is there a journalism organization or person outside of the 538 ABC family that you would like to salute? I guess actually what I would say this is a bit of a cheat answer, but rather than picking out someone specific, I would say I think local journalists do really important and under underappreciated work. Obviously, I think probably listeners of this podcast know that local journalism and like the state capital press corps have really been decimated in recent years. And that's really a shame because you have to have people keeping elected officials accountable. And the vast majority of elected officials in the United States actually are on the local or state level. So, so I think that people should subscribe to their local newspapers or follow local reporters on Twitter, try to get those, those perspectives. And whenever I'm writing about a Senate race in a state or, or anything like that, I try to link to a local article about it rather than the New York Times's article about it or something, for instance. Yeah, I, I just, I, I think that local journalists do the most important work for very little recognition, very little pay, they're, they're stretched thin. So anything we can do to, to support them is important. They certainly have a much harder job than I do. Nathaniel, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Great to talk to you, Mark.
I know that 538 and its founder Nate Silver have taken their share of criticism, but the net positive of what that site has brought to the journalism community is extremely high. Their tools are imperfect. They never claim they were perfect, but they've made the public much more educated about the election process, and that's a very good thing. Thanks to Nate Silver and to Nathaniel Rakich for their work. One personal anecdote. Back when I worked on Baseball Tonight, the founder of the site, Nate Silver, actually joined us for a night. This was in the earliest days of 538. Nate was better known for his baseball work then, but that night he seemed much more interested in a local race in Texas than he did in the fate of the Toronto Blue Jays, foreshadowing what was to come for him and us. The journalism salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who led the journalism department at my alma mater, Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years. Thank you for listening to the journalism salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at journalismpod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.